Heavenly Father, we love and adore you. Those songs that we were singing are really just echoes of the passion of our hearts for you, for your purposes in this world and for your, your glory and for our joy in you. Um, and I, I pray right now, Father, that you would graciously penetrate this room and the hearts that are here, Father, with your Holy Spirit, and that you'd open our eyes, open my eyes and my heart to what you have for us today, Father, that we would look at your word and that we would see clearly the glory of Jesus Christ in it, and um, we would see who you are, how much love you have for us, not just collectively as a corporate body, but, Father, individually by our name, that you love us by our, you, you look down on us and you know us by our name and you know every detail about us and you love us. May we feel that today as we look at this text in Colossians. I ask this in the name of Christ Jesus alone. Amen. It's good to be with you guys today. Um, so if you have your Bibles, grab them and please open them to Colossians 3. We're going to be in verse 12 today. And we have, last week we finished a series and that series was looking at how we fight our sin. And this week, we're picking up in verse 12 um, as we move through the third chapter of this book. And we're looking at this focus of, of, of Paul providing an outline of what it looks like for Christians, for believers, for people who trust Christ, um, people, the people of God, really, for them to pursue holiness. And... Um, we look, we're going to look at what it means for us to pursue holiness in fellowship with other believers, at church, uh, in the home, and in the workplace, and across every facet of our lives. And uh, this is Paul's main burden in this part of the letter. He's working out the, the theological truths and realities that we looked at in the first two chapters, and he's pulling them into our practical lives, what it looks like in our lives. And so let's start with verse 12 and just see what God has for us today. Verse 12 says this, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so Paul, as he begins this new section, looking at this practical outworking of us pursuing holiness in our lives, he uses this phrase, put on then. And this is the same language that we saw last week when he was talking about the new self, the new man. Put on then, the new, uh, the new man. And we said that that new man was none other than Jesus Christ. Paul is telling us in this passage what it looks like to put on Christ. So the old man we talked about last week was Adam. Adam was the old man, and Christ is the new man. And Paul's main burden in this part of Colossians is to get us to see that we need to put on the new man. We don't belong to Adam anymore. We don't belong to our sinful desires anymore. We belong to Jesus Christ. Romans 13 says it this way, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so that list we just read in Colossians 3 of all these different characteristics, that list is the new man. 
It is Jesus Christ. And I think what we need to do first when we look at a list like this in the text is we need to recognize that this is simply not a list of things that we need to do. It is that. But we can't think of it first as a checklist. These qualities are Christian qualities that we should pursue, but before they were ever Christian qualities, they were the, quality of, the qualities of Christ. And I don't think we think about this often, but, but this isn't just like what Jesus would do. This is who he was. What was he like when he was walking around talking to his disciples? What was it like to sit next to him and hear him teach? Hear him even just talk one-on-one with somebody. What was it like to see him interact with people or to walk with them down a road? What kind of person was he like? And this list in Colossians 3 tells us exactly what Jesus Christ was like. This is who Jesus really was. And I think we miss this sometimes when we get to a list like this. We immediately try to apply it to our own lives. And we don't take time just to sit in the fact that this is him we're looking at and just worship him for a moment. This is Jesus who Paul is describing. Jesus Christ, our Savior. For example, Jesus had a compassionate heart. He had a compassionate heart. He was kind. He was humble. He had the most compassionate heart in the world. Nobody has a more compassionate heart about anything than him. He was meek. This is who Jesus really was. Jesus was patient. He was patient even when people were were cruel to him, even when people were slow in picking up things he had repeatedly said, even when people were sinful around him, he was patient and he forgave people. In fact, Paul's explicit here with the connection between Christ and between what we need to do in our own lives. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Jesus forgave us. That's who he really was. That's not just something he did. That's who he still is, in fact. And if you were with Jesus in the first century and you walked up to him and you spent any time with him at all, you would walk away from those conversations and say, you know what, Jesus has the most compassionate heart I've ever seen in a person. He has more love than I've ever seen in anyone. These are the words that you would use to describe him. And at the heart of everything, like I just said, Jesus really loved people. I mean, he radically loved people. This was his very nature. If you remember in John 13, um, David actually mentioned this a while back in one of the messages he had. Jesus washes his disciples' feet before he dies on the cross. It's an amazing scene. Hours before his death, hours before his execution, he's washing their feet. Now think about this. He's the Lord of all creation. The Lord of all creation. He made the stars and he spoke galaxies into existence and he's kneeling down with his hands underneath the dirty feet of his, his disciples and he's washing their feet. And the Gospel of John describes it like this. It's, he says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved those, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the end. That's the kind of love Jesus had. And so when Paul's listening to these attributes and telling us to put them on, it's important to just take a second and recognize when we see these attributes listed off in Scripture, we're looking at the face of Jesus. This is who he really was. This isn't just a list of things to do. This is Christ. And there was no one like him. There's no one like him in the world. John 7 has a scene where the chief priests and the Pharisees tell the officers of the court, hey, listen, you need to go arrest Jesus. He's been blaspheming. 
go arrest this man. He's been blaspheming. And they send out the officers. <laughs> and the officers go to Jesus, and they come back, and they don't have Jesus. And the, the chief priests are like, uh, why are you coming back empty-handed? We told you to arrest this man. And you know what they said to him? They said to the chief priests and the Pharisees, no one ever spoke like this man. No one. We didn't lay a hand on him. We've never heard anything like this before. We've never seen anyone like this before. No one was like Jesus. He was one of a kind. Everything he was, his compassion, his humility, his love, all of these, this text is saying in Colossians that they belong to us. We are the body of Christ. These all belong to his people. This is how Christians are to be known and how the people of God should look. And so we can never divorce who we are from who he is. We're not just trying to be moral. Christians aren't just trying to be ethical in this world. Anyone can try to be ethical. We are putting on the reality of Jesus Christ, which is not only the most beautiful thing in the world, but it is the only source for the people who embrace it of full and lasting joy. And when that happens, those who trust in Christ, those who believe in Christ, they begin to put on Christ and they look like Jesus. They sound like Jesus. They walk around, they do the things that Jesus would do. That's what happens when we trust him and we put on Christ. They're compassionate. Their hearts break for the suffering of this world, like Jesus's did. Real Christians are compassionate people, and they do whatever they can to fight back suffering in this world, whether physical or spiritual, whether it's praying or whether it's sacrificing time and energy and effort or money or whether it's going out on the frontier and actually meeting people who've never heard the word Jesus before and telling them about the gospel. Um, Christians are compassionate people, and Christians forgive others. They forgive people who've wronged them. We don't hold back forgiveness as Christians because Christ has forgiven us of an entire lifetime of dishonoring God. And so Christians are forgiven people. That's who we are. We forgive people. That's who we are. That's our very identity. Never think about what separates a believer and an unbeliever from the world. It's not first a series of doctrines. It is first the fact that one's forgiven and one is not. We are forgiven people, and forgiven people forgive. We forgive. We embrace forgiving even when people have wronged us. And then Paul says in, in Colossians 3, 14, he says this, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And what Paul's saying here is that all of these outworkings of the Christian life, compassion, um, forgiveness, humility, all of these outworkings of a Christian life, these characteristics of the, the people of God that we get from Jesus, they are bound together in perfect harmony through one, and that's love. Christians are defined by powerful and radical love because we've encountered the cross of Christ. We've seen the greatest act of love in the world. And if you think about it too, just rationally, without love, none of these things are real or sincere. Like, it, it, there's no such thing as a compassionate heart that lacks real, authentic love. It's a farce, if that's the case. Kindness without real love is superficial. It's a facade. And in the end, it's really worthless. And humility has to be rooted in love, or else it's pointless self-deprecation, depre and it's, it's really a sham that you're putting on. Which is why Paul says that above all these is love. It's the most critical, and it binds all of these things together 
in perfect harmony. Love makes not only all the other attributes sincere and genuine, but it makes them strong. It augments them. Listen to how Paul describes love in 1 Corinthians 13. This will sound familiar to you if you've ever been to a wedding. <laughs> love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. This is what Christian love looks like. This is what authentic Christian love looks like. It actually produces and brings forth these other attributes, humility and, and compassion. And get this, it's profound. This is, this is the, probably the single most profound thing in this entire passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is the only thing in the Christian experience that will never, ever end. It will not end. Think about it. Faith has an expiration date. As critical as faith is, as important as it is to understanding Christian theology, faith has an expiration date because one day we're going to see him face to face. We're going to see the one that we have faith in. And hope, which is another huge part of what we believe here, obviously, given our name, um, will one day end when he comes. And our hope, we get to embrace him as a reality and not just pin something on the future um, that we believe and trust in. Um, we don't need hope anymore in the end because he'll be with us. But love never ends. It never ends. It will go on forever. When the universe is rolled up like a dirty blanket and God replaces it with the new heavens and the new earth, love, the same love we feel for each other and the same love we feel for God will still remain it will still remain. The same love that God's exerted forward to us in the gospel will still anchor us and remain. Um, but here's the crux. We see that Paul, in this passage in uh, Colossians, is telling the Christian, this is the kind of person you need to be. This is the kind of person you need, to, you need to put on this. The people of God are this kind of person. But the question we have today is, is this, what is it about this command from Paul that carries any weight for the Christian? These character qualities are not revolutionary. They're, they're literally universal. You're not going to find a, ra a, a rational person in the world who would say, uh, those qualities are garbage. You should never be compassionate. You should never be loving. You're not going to find a rational person who feels that way. Every rational human being on the planet knows that these are virtues, and these are good things to have. I don't care what religion you subscribe to. What is it about Paul's command to the Colossian church, that as he presses his pen to the parchment, he writes the letter, it gets sent off to Colossae, it's opened up in front of the Colossian church, and someone is reading it to them. What is it that takes it to the Colossians' heart and causes it to take root, causes it to bear fruit, causes it to have effect? How does that happen? How does the passage in Scripture enable us to put on Christ Jesus, to put on compassion, because that's the real question when we get to a list like this. Anyone can read a list and say, yeah, I should be doing those things. No one here is going to disagree with that, but we would say it's hard to do. I mean, can I be real? Like, it's sometimes I don't want to be compassionate. Sometimes I just don't want to. Sometimes I don't feel like forgiving. It's not my first inclination is to forgive. Sometimes I just want to be angry at that person. I just want to be frustrated at them instead of love them, which is what I should be doing. 
And so the question we have is this, looking at this list, how? How can this command from Paul absolutely grip us? What is it about this command that has power and weight for the Christian? Well, Paul gives us a hint in verse 12. He gives us a hint at the very beginning of this section. Listen to this. He says in verse 12, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's how he begins this whole passage. This is Paul's answer to why Christians can live this kind of life, why we can put on Christ. Paul is saying here that we are God's chosen ones. This is how you put on Christ. You've been chosen by God. The Greek here is eklektos, and it can mean elect. It's where we get the word elect from. It also means chosen out of a larger group, a, a, a portion chosen or an individual chosen out of a larger group. <laughs> That's the word in Greek. And this is Paul's foundation for giving the Colossians a list like this. He has no right to give them any list like this unless he can give them a foundation. And this is the foundation. This is the reason a Christian can put on Christ because God chose us. That's the whole purpose that he has for mentioning this. He wouldn't mention it otherwise. And the thing about it is this language is all over the New Testament, not just in Paul's writings, but across the entire gamut of New Testament. For example, 1 Thessalonians 1 says this, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he, God, has chosen you. How do you know that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So Paul's saying, do you know how we know that God chose you to the Thessalonian Christians? He's like, when we preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to you and you believed it came in power and it came in the Holy Spirit with full conviction and that proves to Paul and to his fellow workers that God's chosen you, Thessalonian church. God has chosen you. He loves you. He set his love on you. And it's important to note that Paul isn't using this phrase. He never uses this phrase to describe the super-Christian or to describe someone who's been selected for a specific mission. You can be chosen by God for a mission, but most of the time this is used in the New Testament is to describe everyday Christians. It's not a special title given to certain believers. It is used to describe the people of God, every single one of them. And it's powerful because it tells us, when we think about it, what it means that underneath every affection we have for God, underneath every decision we've made toward him, to love him, to commit our lives to him, every desire to pursue him, underneath all of those was a decision he made about us. The reason we love God isn't because that love began in our hearts. That love began in his heart. And this is mysterious and complex, but it's why we see this phrase often in the Bible, God's chosen ones, and we hardly ever see the phrase, ones who've chosen God. And what I want to do for the rest of our time today is just look at that phrase and ask why. Why would you write this in the Bible? Why does God put it in the Bible? What does he want to see about this phrase? For some of us, it would be way more comfortable if God didn't include this phrase in the scriptures. For me, for years, it would have been way more comfortable but he's got a purpose in doing this. This is not arbitrary. There's a reason for this. And so we need to ask the question, how in the world, how in the world does, is this helpful? How does this enable us to put on Christ? 
and to do what Paul's commanding us to do. And so to do this, I want to turn to a passage that I think provides the clearest picture and answer, and that's in Ephesians 1. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to Ephesians 1. And I believe this gives us the best picture, not only why God wants us to see this, who we are, that we are chosen people, but why it's important and essential that we do. And what it is that God really wants us to feel when we hear those words. What kind of things does he want us to know about him? What kind of things does he want us to know about his love? So Ephesians 1, we're going to start with verse 3. Just read four verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. One of the reasons why I want to look at these four verses is I believe, and, and really the, the book of Ephesians in total, but this section of Ephesians and this specific passage provide the deepest and richest picture of why God designed redemptive history this way. And I want to say before we even begin going down this path, because I know some of the pitfalls, nothing about what we talk about today, nothing should make you think that God does not love the entire world. Nothing about what we talk about today should make you think that God does not love every individual human being that bears his image. Nothing. Nothing should make you think that the gospel cannot save anyone. The gospel saves everyone who believes without fail, no questions asked. And we proclaim the gospel as Christians to every single human being on this planet. No questions asked. And this shouldn't make you question whether or not God's shown mercy and grace to everyone. God's shown a thousand graces to every human being on this planet. He's been profoundly merciful even to people who hate him and would like to forget that he even exists. But what this text does tell us is that for those who do believe, for those who have put their faith in Christ, something else is going on here than simply God's common grace over all humanity. Something has changed inside of them. Because let's be honest, it's not normal to like Jesus. It's not normal to love Jesus. It is abnormal to love a man who died 2,000 years ago, a Jewish carpenter who died 2,000 years ago, um, and to say that I'm willing to completely deny myself and give up my life to follow this man. That's weird. Unless something's happened inside me that is miraculous and life-changing. And so why? What's the difference here between the world and this category that Paul's calling out, God's chosen people? Well, I believe the, the answer here is that Paul uh, gives it in the first few verses uh, of Ephesians 1. At the beginning, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is setting the tone for this letter. He's, he's saying, he's praising God for everything he's about to tell us about God, because Paul knows that it's God who did this, that underneath everything that he's about to tell us, God was ultimately the source. And so he says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So 
For those who are in Christ, this is amazing. For those who are in Christ, God has held back nothing. That's what I take the word every to mean. Every spiritual blessing is that God has, has held back nothing in how he will bless us now and in the future when we're with him. So just think about that for a moment. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, none are left out. Not a single blessing you can conceive of is left out. God has literally spared no expense. Every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But then to undergird how remarkable that gift in and of itself is, Paul says that these blessings are entirely ours because God chose us. It says literally, um, precisely, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul's saying, God chose you. God chose you before the world was created. That's what before the foundation of the world is, is another way of saying eternity past, before creation. And it means that in God's mind and in his heart, this was always his decision, which just boggles the mind. But that should raise a question for us, because why choose us then? Why not pick a different time to choose us? Why choose his own people before the foundation of the world? What's significant about that timing? What's, what's so significant that God, in inspiring Paul, wants to make sure he puts it down? Here's why. God is desiring to make something very clear. The ultimate reason that we are recipients of every spiritual blessing has nothing to do with what we've done or who we are. The ultimate reason, the most foundational reason that we are the recipient of every spiritual blessing is because God chose us before we could do anything to earn it or deserve it, period. God chose us absolutely free of any constraint. He was not constrained at all, looking down on us, to choose. He had no, there was no moral evidence in us because he did it way before we were around. This is what Romans 9, 11 says happened before we did anything good or evil. Um, God made this decision. Before there was anything good or evil in us to show value or no value, God made this decision. So we can't look in our own hearts and find some reason for us to have been commended to God as a reason for being chosen. It is entirely of grace, which is what Paul is saying about salvation in Romans 9. Listen to this. When talking about salvation, he says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And, and God's goal in having this mercy is for us to put on the new man. So we can't disconnect it from this text in Colossians, to put on Christ. Ephesians 1.4 says, he chose us before the foundation of the world in Christ that we would be holy and blameless before him. So our compassion and our humility and all these different attributes that we see listed off in Colossians, all these virtues, their existence is because of God. They came from God's hand. God is the reason those fruits exist in the Christian heart and mind. It isn't ultimately because of us. We are there. We are playing a role. We're exhibiting them, and we're important and critical in the, that whole role, but ultimately is because of God. Paul is saying that this holiness, which 
includes compassion, includes love, includes humility. All of these spring up from God's work in our own hearts, and they're a decision, they're a result of his love before the world was created. And Paul's telling us that this love, this love that was in the heart of God from eternity past, is what's issued forth these good works. Listen to this in Ephesians 2. Paul says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is exactly what Paul is saying in Colossians. It's exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians 1. God prepared our holiness before creation. And that alone, if we just sat on that, really should take a week of really careful and thoughtful consideration and worship. It is amazing to consider that. Any good that we've done was being written by God before there was any of us. Before the stars even existed, God had determined the good that you would do, how that would work out in your life, how the gospel would play out in other people's lives that you bless. But what happens next in Ephesians 1 is profound because Paul basically takes what he said in that first sentence and he sums up everything in another sentence showing how and why God did it this way. God chose, made this decision. And in doing that, he provides us with three massive paradigms, three massive ways of thinking about this that we need to get. If we want to understand why God did it this way, why God calls his people chosen ones in Scripture, why he doesn't leave that part out or tell it a different way, if we want to know what's so important for the Colossians to understand, so Paul's writing it down, he, need, he needs them to know this before they start to try to put on Christ, um, we need to see these three things. They're huge. They're critical. Listen to this one uh, sentence one more time. It's Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, that's a complex sentence, um, but it's too important for us just to give it a glance. Three things here I want to focus on. First is this. Paul says here that we were predestined, which means to be determined beforehand for adoption. Paul is saying that the reason we are sons of God right now and daughters of God right now is that he loved us from eternity and he destined us to be in his family. He destined for us to be in his family. That's what Paul means when he says, predestined us for adoption to himself. God chose us to be his own children before we were even born, before the universe was ever even created, which is amazing for me personally to think about this because I've done a lot not to earn that or deserve that in one bit. I've done many things to disqualify me from that. My whole life has been a disqualification for that. But he's not looking at those things. He's looking at Christ. And what it means is that God wasn't constrained to choose any of his people. He wasn't forced to do that. They can't earn any of it. It was all free gift. It's all grace alone. So think about this for a moment. For those who belong to Christ, God loved you before the world was created. He loved you before he spoke into being ocean, sky, and land. 
He loved you individually. Think about you. Don't think about a group of people. Think about yourself right now before galaxy upon galaxy exploded into existence because he spoke. God loved you, get this, before time even began. He set his love on you before time even began, which means, if you're thinking carefully, that God's love for you never had a beginning. He never started to love you. He's always loved you. And it's not because of you. It's not because of me. It's because of him. That's why he loves us. And some of us right now might be thinking, this God choosing business is uncomfortable for me because I have a family and they don't know Christ. They don't know Christ. I have friends who are unbelievers at work. We all probably do in our recreation, wherever we are, we have unbelievers. Does this mean they're not chosen? Does this mean that they have no hope at all? And my response to you is absolutely not. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, it means the exact opposite. What this truth tells us about God is that nothing in us initiated God's choosing. Nothing in us. We didn't show him anything to earn this at all. It is entirely gracious, which means no one, and I mean, I don't care how much of an unbeliever they are. I don't care how how backward their thinking is about God or about anything else, no one is beyond the reach of God. No one is beyond the reach of God. God can save anyone, period. And so this should give us great hope because we don't need to look in the hearts of other people and who they are and what they're doing to get any hope from their conversion. We just need to get on our knees and pray for God to do it and speak truth and life into their lives. The second thing is this. That's number one. The second thing is that God did this through Jesus Christ. This is so critical because without Christ, without Jesus, none of this, none of all of this matters. None of it matters. Without Jesus, none of it. Jesus Christ, our champion, perfect in every way, takes onto himself everything that could keep us from being in God's family, every single thing, everything, every failure, every moral indiscretion, every evil thought or desire, he takes all of them on. There's not a single thing that you've ever thought of or done which dishonored God that he did not pick up and bring with him to the cross. Not a single sin he did not bear. And then, think about our list in Colossians, with the most compassionate heart in the world, he turns to the cross. And his kindness is what keeps him still as they force thorns into his skull. And his humility is what allows him to have his clothes torn free as they spit on him and beat him. And his meekness is what keeps his mouth silent, though he is innocent of every single thing they're saying. And his patience is what allows him to hold onto the post as they open up his back with whips. His grace is what forgives the very men who are beating him and who are nailing him to a tree and forgives us as he's pinned to that cross and lifted up for everyone to see. And his love for us is what keeps him there. 
though he knows his father's about to look away. Though he knows the, the just wrath, the justice for all of the ways we dishonored God is about to fall on him in full force, he knows the only way that we can become children of God, the only way we can get adoption into his family, the only way is if he stays on that tree and he loves us so he stays. He stays. He does not move. Without Jesus, without this happening through Christ, none of this matters. It does not matter at all. Jesus, to us as a body, and to us individually, is everything to us. Everything. And that leads us to the third thing, which is where I'll close. Paul says that all of this, God's love expressed to his people before the foundation of the world, his purpose through Christ Jesus to bring in many into his family, all of this was according to the purpose of God's will and to the praise of his glorious grace. That's what it's all pointing to. That's how Paul sums up this section. According to the purpose of God's will and to the praise, literally in the Greek, of the glory of his grace. Paul is saying that this concept of God setting his love on individuals before the foundation of the world, it isn't in the Bible for debate ultimately. It isn't in the Bible for theological thought ultimately. It isn't in the Bible for analysis or speculation. It's in the Bible ultimately for worship. It's in the Bible ultimately so that we can praise the glory of his grace in doing it this way. That's why he says specifically here. And if I can tell you something hard, if you just would give me the courtesy, the highest and greatest purpose in the universe, this is going to be tough. It's tough for me even. The highest and greatest purpose in the universe is not our salvation. It is not the salvation of the world. That's not the highest and greatest purpose of the universe. And I know that's tough, but that's not what this is all about. That's not what this is all about, ultimately. It tells us that, and it's glorious. We're not the center of the story. We're not the center of the story. The highest and greatest thing in the universe is the glory of the living God, period. It is God who is at the center of the story. But here's the beautiful thing, and we need to hear this. We need to make this connection, or we're not going to be seeing it the way that he sees it. We were made, we were made to enjoy God and to enjoy his glory. And when we see it, and when, when we embrace it, we experience the highest and fullest joy there is for a human being. So God, in pursuing his glory, in doing things these ways, in pursuing to exalt his grace on the cross in such a way that he has, he is fighting tooth and nail for our highest joy. We can't disassociate them. We were made for his glory. We were made to see it and enjoy it and embrace it. And he's not content with us settling for some cheap secondhand glory that we see here. He wants us to settle for him, the highest and greatest of all glories. And he wants you to have fullness of joy. He doesn't just want you to have fullness of joy. He wants you to have fullness of joy. Impossibly full. But he wants that to go on forever. And the only way you can have that is with him. The only way. And so this list in Colossians where we see the character of Christ Jesus and we're commanded to put on Christ, to put on compassion, to put on love, to put on humility, this, 
command to do that, all of these things arise, must arise from a recognition that God is glorious. His grace is glorious, absolutely glorious. His grace in the the gospel is infinitely spectacular. We don't do these things because we want high marks as a Christian. We don't do these things because they feel good, even if they do, and they should. We don't do these things because they square with some ethical code over here. We do these things because in our hearts we were made to delight in God, for him to be our treasure, for Christ to be our treasure. And in doing that, our act of spiritual worship in doing that, we put on Christ. It is praising him, literally, with our actions. That's what it looks like to praise God and praise him for his glorious grace. We look at the cross and we see how far God was willing to go to save his people. And we begin to desire him more than anything else in this world. And that's when we begin to put on Christ. That's when we begin to show compassion. That's when we begin to show love. When we start to treasure him as he really ought to be treasured. And so my prayer today for us individually, all of us here, and really my prayer for the larger Risen Hope community in Kingsgate um, is that we would see that glory. The glory of God's grace would not be obscured from us by anything in us or outside of us, but that we would see it and that our hearts would sing. Our hearts would sing and that in beholding it and seeing it, we would be transformed by it and love him more than anything else in the world. Love him more than not being compassionate. Love him more than not being humble. Love him more than not being a forgiving person. That we would love him in such a way, such a radical way by seeing him that it would transform our hearts and we would become what we behold. Let's pray. God, this is such a huge and massive concept. And I am at your mercy, Father. I am completely inadequate to to be able to communicate it properly. I don't think anyone can. I certainly can't. And so my prayer, Father, in the next few minutes is that as we worship you and as we participate in communion for those who trust Christ, Father, that we would see with clarity your love for us individually, for us, our name on your mouth, our head on your chest, listening to your heartbeat, Father, that we would see your love for us individually. The corporate body of Christ, the the whole world, your love for them is an amazing thing. But Father, what melts my heart is to know that you look down on me and you love me. I pray that we would feel that. All of us would feel that. You set your eyes on us, and you loved us, and you did it before there were stars. Help us feel even just the slightest inclining of that reality, and may it have its full effect on our hearts. I ask these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.